in terms of suicide, if you if you were to list the top five risk indicators of suicide, and you were to risk the top five characteristics of our service users, they're the same list. It's, it's men in midlife. It's um, having degraded well-being, particularly of the social isolation. There's being unemployed or employed in low-skilled manual work. There's being recently separated, especially where there's child contact issues. And lastly, domestic abuse. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today's guest is Rick Bradford. Rick is a semi-retired engineer and theoretical physicist. He's married with two sons in their mid-thirties and he blogs on gender issues on empathygap.uk and he's published a book, The Empathy Gap, in 2019 under the name William Collins. The book and blog address issues of male disadvantage. He's also a volunteer and former trustee of the Welsh charity Both Parents Matter Cymru, which seeks to address non-resident parents after parental separation, usually with child contact problems. Interestingly, Rick has never himself been divorced or separated or experienced child contact problems, and neither has anyone in his extended family. Nor has Rick himself experienced any of the male disadvantages about which he's written so much, but we're really glad to have him on today to come and talk to us about male disadvantage. Welcome, Rick. Oh, well, my pleasure. Hi, Rick. Very pleased to meet you. Can you perhaps begin by telling us something about your career and then how you came to be part of the charity Both Parents Matter? Yes, OK, but the, 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 those, the two parts of that question are really completely disjoint because my, my career, as Naomi has just uh, outlined there, is... Well, my academic background at university was theoretical physics, and uh, I've always earned my living as a mechanical engineer. Um, so that doesn't exactly lead naturally into the uh, <laughs> the subject matter of my blog and and my charity work. So the two things are completely distinct, and it, it's no coincidence, I suppose, that I got most active in in these issues, blogging and and the charity work when I when I retired essentially because I've been retired from full-time work uh, for about eight years I still do some work I'm semi-retired really um, so so my career has nothing to do with what we'll be talking about today um, how did I get involved with the charity um, well I suppose that that was through personal contact with the national manager of, of the charity who uh, became aware of my existence through my blog, I suppose. I think that's how it happened. It's a bit difficult to recall because it goes back some time. But I think that was the origin of it. And um, so we had a shared interest in these issues to do with men, essentially. Um, in the case of um, the national manager of the charity, specific to the issue, of course, of parental separation and child contact, and in my case, both that and a whole raft of other issues that I've blogged and, uh, and written about. So that, that was the, the sort of point of contact, the, the common interest. Um, and then I, I, I didn't, although I was aware of the charity for some time, I didn't get involved with it until about six years ago when I got involved specifically because the charity was in danger of going bust um, through lack of funding. So I got involved specifically to uh, get get money, write, write funding applications essentially to try and stop the charity going under because it's an essential job that they're doing and a unique job in Wales. Well, that, that's fascinating uh, Rick, but can I just get it clear in my mind? So and I was looking at your um, uh, physics and uh, physics related to the universe uh, web page earlier on mm. and that is fascinating in its own right so you clearly keep up with that very actively um, and you're also an author of books um, and then you're also involved with the uh, the charity both parents matter I still wasn't quite clear from your answer and there was a lot there just how 
your interest was piqued by the subject? Ah, well, yes, in, in, in terms of gender matters generally, yeah, well, that goes back a long way, really. I mean, one's, one's interest is piqued by living in the world, I suppose, and, uh, and, and having a sex and having relationship with other people with, with, with a sex. Um, so it goes back a long way. I mean, I haven't always been uh, sympathetic to men's issues. If I think back to the early 70s, when I was a, an undergraduate, at that, I mean, that time, early 70s, was when feminism's, or women's lib, as we called it back in the day, was really taking off in the UK. And um, I had no difficulty with it. It just seemed like a, a cry for equal treatment, which I think is how um, pretty well all men of my generation saw it. So there was, there was no antagonism to it, really, from what I recall, quite the opposite. Um, I mean, I was... I was at Cambridge at the time, so in the early 70s, Cambridge consisted of something like 30 colleges which were all male and three colleges which were all female. Um, so you know, one, one's, one had one's face pretty well shoved into that gender issue when you, when you contemplate that. So I was involved in um, lobbying the dons in my college to, to go co-ed. In, in our college and um, we had a meeting in which they said well it'll happen but it'll be 10 years and they were right it, 10 years later um, they went co-ed and I think all the all the former men's colleges are now roughly 50-50 in terms of sex I think there's a couple of women's colleges that are still all female actually um, but yeah so it, it, my point is at that time um, my, my, my interests were not in men, my interests were more aligned with the feminist objectives at that point. But by the by, I re recall by the the second half of the seventies when I'd moved to UCL, um, I was beginning to notice sort of antagonistic elements creeping in. Um, and you know, I suppose it was feminism getting rather militant, and it always rather bewildered me. But of course, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, I didn't take any great interest in it at that time. But clearly from then until the early 90s, my interest or my concern with the way things were going was building. Because, I mean, uh, I've never been a great newspaper reader, but my, my wife always took The Guardian, so it was, it was lying about the house in hard copy in those days. So I tended to poke my nose into it now and then. And it just seemed increasingly that the... The narrative was was very one-sided, which was annoying. But I mean, it's not something you do anything about. You just go along with it. But I must have been getting increasingly concerned because when Neil Linden published his book No More Sex War in 1992, um, I was right on it straight away. And and similarly, the next the next year in '93, when David Thomas pu published his book Not Guilty, I, I was on that as well. Uh, and shortly thereafter, Warren, Warren Farrell's book, Myth of Male Power. So I was clearly getting more and more concerned by then. Uh, but I was still working full-time, so I didn't, have, I didn't have the leisure to do anything more than be vaguely concerned. Uh, but those, those publications at least showed that I wasn't the only one thinking along these lines. Because I think it's... A, I think it's um, probably more men have the same sort of misgivings as I do than you would know because they don't talk about it because frankly they're frightened of talking about it um, and you can see why they should be frightened I mean Neil, Neil Linden that I mentioned there he was a high-flying journalist up until 1992 really going places he could command interviews with the great and the good well when he published that book his career was over so this, this issue of cancellation, as we now call it, has a long history. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's the sort of history of it. But I, I only started getting active when I was beginning to go part-time at work, preparatory to retirement, when I had more leisure to think about these things. So that's the history. It goes back a long way, and it's, it's, se it's several decades of, of slowly gathering concern, really. And, and um, I started blogging because 2013, I think it was, 
I started to ask myself, well, have I got this wrong? I mean, <laughs> am I just imagining things? Uh, being, you know, a physical scientist by background, you, of course, I gravitate to the data, you know, let's, let's find the data. So I started researching things. And I don't know why, but I looked at domestic abuse first, I think, and I looked at education shortly after that. And then I soon found that, uh, no, I wasn't imagining it, actually. And actually, <laughs> actually, it was a good deal worse than I'd imagined in terms of the empirical realities of these things and the skew and in, in concern. So that so was the what origin. Was it? So, sorry, Rick, what was it you found then? Well, for example, in domestic, um, domestic violence issues, if I, w I began to look on the Home Office website and uh, Ministry of Justice websites and all these government sources, and you, I could find oodles of documents about violence against women and girls, and, and <laughs> sounds incredibly naive to me now, but back then, only nine years ago, I was so naive, I started looking for the, the policies about violence against men and boys. <laughs> Uh, and of course found nothing. Uh, so I started rooting through the women's documents to see, well, is it in there, you know? But the only mention you'll get of, of men in vogue documents, as we call it, violence against women and girls, is um, uh, men can do their bit in preventing violence against women and girls, which I thought, uh, you know, and, and if you look at, of course, if you look at the criminal justice statistics, you'll find although women are the majority of victims of domestic abuse, men are actually the majority, men and boys are the majority of victims of violence in the world as a, as a whole. So, you know, there are, there are, there's another story here that was being completely submerged, I thought. And that was just the start and, um, and went on to look at other topics. And, uh, I, you know, it's one of these issues where you turn over a stone and you find creepy crawlers. Um, and then pretty soon you realise there's creepy crawlers under every stone you turn over. Thank you. Go on, Naomi. Well, you, you mentioned uh, council culture there, Rick, in, in your answer somewhere a little bit earlier. And, now, you know, it's interesting that your book was published under a different name, the pseudonym William Collins. Was that oh, yeah. because you were yeah. worried about yeah. Well, the, 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 the website, the Illustrated Empathy Gap, is, um, is registered under that name. That's the name that you'll pull up if you, if you look. And, yes, it was self-protection. Um, I think if I, if I was to do it now, I was still working mind you, when I started. So I was in a vulnerable position and I've had a, an association with the university on and off since I retired as well. So, you know, I, I have a degree of vulnerability to being cancelled, although much, much less now that my livelihood doesn't depend on it. But I think if I had my time again now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't use that pseudonym. I think it's more of a hindrance. And I've, I always use my real name if I if I do something like this or appear in public, because it doesn't, doesn't seem right to use a pseudonym if you're actually t looking people in the face. But yes, it was self-protection, um, particularly the online pre presence. Um, it was a degree of self-protection. Don't particularly want a brick through my window or anything of that sort. And is there any significance to the, to the name? Oh yeah, choice? well I, I chose it rather in haste. I had to come up with something. And I don't know if I'd just been rereading Pride and Prejudice at the time, quite possibly, but William Collins, or to give him his full moniker, the Reverend William Collins, of course, is a character in Pride and Prejudice. And he's the, um, the socially inept vicar that, um, uh, well, everyone despises, women and men, really. <laughs> and so that seemed appropriate for the, um, uh, let's say, minority view that I was going to be putting forward in in the blog thank you so uh, what kind of work does both parents matter do and apart from redressing a balance why is it so necessary well the the primary focus of that charity is to assist non-resident parents after parental separation especially with child contact issues or correctly the correct term is child arrangement issues um, because they, they are what come to the fore all the time with non-resident parents um, 
So we assist people of both sexes, but of course non-resident parents are overwhelmingly men. So about 92% of non-resident parents are men. But we do assist people of both sexes, um, and increasingly you know, there's an increasing proportion of, of women service users now. It's in increased over the last three years from a mere 3 or 4% now up to about 15%. Um, so, but yes, the primary focus is um, helping people with, with that, that issue, getting contact with the children after parental separation. And that inevitably means a close involvement with family court issues, although we do try and steer people away from family courts, if possible. But generally, by the time they contact us, um, they've, they've rather despaired of the, the personal contact route of settling these things. Um, but the, the other thing we do, and we've started doing this because we realised um, from our work that it was needed, uh, we, we provide specialist support to specifically male victims of domestic abuse. So, and that, it's remarkable to me anyway um, that there is such a strong relationship between those two issues, parental separation and, and domestic abuse. But of course we know this if you look at the, um, the annual crime surveys for England and Wales. You can, you can see in that, going back many, many, many years, that uh, domestic abuse is far more prevalent, about eight times more prevalent amongst separating couples than it is amongst stably married couples. And whether that's because the domestic abuse causes the separation or the separation causes the domestic abuse uh, is a conundrum that I've never managed to sort out. It's perhaps a bit of both. So those are the two things we do. So, so why do you offer support to men who have been victims of domestic violence but not women? Yeah, that, that, that's simply because it's, um, it's men that suffer from the dearth of provision. Um, we've conducted surveys on male victims and, and, and most of them just don't know where to turn for help, which isn't surprising because there isn't many places that are sympathetic. There are notionally some charities that do support men, but they, they gen generally tend to be primarily focused on women and do men as a sort of adjunct. Um, uh, and to be bluntly frank, I have some concerns over the ideological position of some of those charities, which seems to me um, wouldn't, wouldn't lend themselves to the most sympathetic support of men. Uh, th there are there are issues here where, uh, to do with, with vetting callers to helplines, for example, which I don't want to go into too deeply, but um, f for female victims there is uh, this idea that you should believe the victim. And as regards charity support to people that come to you for assistance, that's absolutely correct, by the way. It's, it's not correct if you're in a court of law because believing the victim is like biasing the answer. But if you're providing help to people, then believing people when they come to you for help is sort of essential to the nature of the job. Um, and that, so that's fine. I have no problem with that, the way the women sec the women's sector deal with women. But in the, in the men's sector, um, for example, um, the Dean Project in Wales, which is the sort of Welsh government-funded uh, male victims helpline. They operate at what is actually a vetting system and it, it consists of um, a toolkit put together by a charity called Respect, which is very big in these issues, um, in which basically the man has to run the gauntlet of proving that he's the victim, not the perpetrator, disguising himself as a victim. And it's that we don't do that. So we we believe them. Uh, that's no, that's our number one service. Actually, we we believe them, even even if we might have doubts on for some individuals. You have to start off from that position. So that that's one part of it. And the other part of it is simply we don't we don't offer services to female victims because there's no way we can compete with the, the women's sector. W women's aid is is a huge um, federation. It's a federation of something like 300 plus individual charities. The individual charities are locally based. 
They're locally based because they mostly run refuges which have to be locally based in order to work. And each one of those 300 odd charities are funded massively more than we are. Um, so we can't, we can, there'd be no point in us going into rather pathetic competition with, with the likes of Women's Aid. It'd be like your corner shop competing with Morrison's. So we don't do that, and we haven't got many resources to squander anyway. So, so we, we, we concentrate on the men as regards domestic abuse, but we're happy to help callers of either sex as regards you know, advice on child contact and family court issues. Thank you. you. You're giving me a very clear picture there, Rick. Thanks for that. So, I mean, obviously every individual situation is different. Is it possible to give us some sort of idea of the experience, what it's like for parents who don't have contact with their children? Well, they're very distressed in, in the main. Um, the degree of distress varies, um, but that's the central issue. I mean, what we hear over and over and over and over again is, I, I just want to see the kids. I just want to see the kids. and. This drives a lot of men to be suicidal. We, as a charity over the last three or four years, we've been gathering data on this using, using standard validated psychological tests. So we use the, uh, Warwick Ed the shorter Warwick Edinburgh scale for mental well-being. And we use the longer De Jean Gerville scale for social and emotional isolation, commonly called loneliness. And um, the statistics are horrifying, actually. I mean, we're not surprised to see the statistics going the way that they do, because we know that from first-hand experience, but it sort of brings it home when you see it, you know, c come out of statistical analysis, what the just how, in what a state these, these, these men are in. I mean, 20, 28% of our, of our service users either are experiencing or have recently experienced suicidal ideation. That's a huge, huge proportion. And 5.5% have actually attempted suicide. So, you know, we're sitting at the epicentre of suicide in our charity. Um, in fact, it's, it's clear that we are because um, in addition to the other things, the people that come to us are not, they're not a cross-section of the public. We're very much dealing with the lower socio-economic groups and the reason for that is if you're well healed, then you go to a solicitor. It's if you don't have any money, you tend to come to a charity that's offering free services. So over half of our service users are unemployed and two-thirds of them are on universal credit. So we're very much dealing with that, that you know, poor end of, of uh, society. So if, if in, you know, in terms of suicide, if you, if you were to list the top five risk indicators of suicide, and you were to risk the top five characteristics of our service users, they're the same list. So I mean, let, let, me, let me see if I can, <laughs> I can do it. So it's, it's men in midlife, it's, um, having degraded well-being, particularly of the social isolation, there's being unemployed or employed in low-skill manual work, there's being recently separated, especially where there's child contact issues, and lastly domestic abuse. So it's no wonder we have such a high level of suicidality because it's all, almost true by definition. And, and as I say, we, t we do do these, these, these tests and the, the outcome of those is, is pretty horrifying, especially with social isolation. If you look at the, dist the distribution of scores in, the, in a general population um, for loneliness, social and emotional isolation, then thankfully you find that the, the most prevalent score is near zero, very low loneliness, and the least prevalent score is at the very highest end of, of extremely severe loneliness and it sort of monotonically decreases. 
So that's what you'd hope to be the case, and it is in the general population. But with our service users, you can reverse that. The most prevalent score is the highest loneliness score, and the least prevalent is the least loneliness. Um, 30, 35% of our service users are classified as severely or extremely severely lonely, which has a prevalence in the general population of just 5%. And you get a similar phenomenon with the mental well-being. Um, in, for the, the shorter Warwick Edinburgh, if you're scoring 15 or low, or lower than 15, has a prevalence in the general population of less than 2%, whereas in our service users it's 30%. So it is a massive, massive skews, and the whole distribution is skewed in that direction. So as I say, this really just puts numbers to what we see every day, you know. Thank you, uh, Rick. You paint a very powerful picture there. Did you want to ask something, Naomi? No, just really to say that I think it's really helpful that you have that kind of data on the people that are using your services. Actually, it's, that paints a very detailed picture, doesn't it, about the extent of the challenges that people are facing. It's, you know, it's quite horrifying, really, to hear about that level of distress and clearly your charity the charity you're working with is is providing a service to people who are a badly served population yeah that that's right and we we provide sort of two two types of service there's what you might call the transactional stuff or advice stuff which can be as technical as legal advice and we, we do put people in front of solicitors we have solicitors chairing our regular weekly meetings which will um, you know he or she is there to to give f free advice we actually have a trained solicitor um, um, that takes does outbound calls to uh, advise people one-on-one -on -one as well and we all we also um, affect introductions to local solicitors um, who are willing to do a, an initial pro bono consultation so there's that level and our case advisors um, the experienced ones, at least, um, have almost equivalent level of, of legal knowledge. So, it, so we're giving that sort of support. But we're also doing things that, that seem more mundane but are actually very important. It's things like help with form filling. You know, if you've ever had to fill in a C100 form for the family court, uh, you know, it might, might challenge a graduate, but if you're, if you're not exactly of the highest level of intelligence, <laughs> it's going to be even more challenging, I would think. So we help people with form filling, and, um, and we, we try and emphasise, I mean, the, the, the theme that runs throughout this, um, when we're advising people on, you know, trying to get better contact with the children and addressing the family court and addressing their ex-partner, is, you know, you're going to have to leave the anger aside, mate. You know, it isn't going to work. It's no good saying she won't let me see the kids. I'm going to take her to court. <laughs> no, nope. that's not going to work. I mean, apart from being morally reprehensible, it's it's not going to work anyway. Um, so the ethos we promulgate is having a constructive approach, which will only be constructive for everyone. And. Um, it's remarkable that you, something as simple as making a parenting plan, which is what we we try and encourage people to do, write down on one no more than one side of A4 in a bullet point list what it was you actually want in terms of contact. Don't just say I want to see the kids. You get get specific. You know how how often realistically are you going to want. Are you going to be able to see the kids? If you're working, you've got to work around your work patterns, haven't you? You know, and what about the weekends? And what about holidays? And what about Christmas? And what about Father's Day? And and how are the how is the exchange? Yeah, how's the handovers going to be managed? You know, and what about the grandparents? Can they have contact as well? All these things, these practical things, which you have to sort of encourage people to focus on that, because you see the family courts. They basically want parents to go away. 
because all all parents bring to the family courts is problems and people that you know parents that enter the family courts thinking there's going to be this king solomon sitting there that's going to solve all their problems um, are deluding themselves because the, the courts won't do that the courts want to hear solutions so if you can go along with a solution they're going to be a lot more friendly to you than if you just go along you know being angry and belligerent so a large part of the work is is um, encouraging people to move in that direction but the, but the other part of the charity of course is the emotional support part and that's that is the growing part of the charity and increasingly we recognize that as as uh, the even more important um, and we do that we do that th through having a buddy scheme so that's like a one 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 on one befriending scheme so the buddies uh, we use a lot of volunteers by the way because we're not very cash rich so we can't afford much staff so we depend on a lot of volunteers and so the buddies are either volunteers or staff and there's uh, a one-on-one -on -one relationship between them and given service users so a given buddy will will be buddying up with the several service users and it's all conducted by mobile phone so we supply people with charity mobiles so they don't have to use their own so we have to we have to protect people's uh, contact details so we don't we, we tell people only to use the first names for example and never to give away their you know address or email or anything like that so that's the buddying service that's one-on-one -on -one support um, but then there's the meetings and we have a number of different types of meetings we have the the so-called support meetings which are weekly that's the one that's chaired by either a case advisor or a solicitor but it also because we get a lot of people at that we get 25 30 people at those there's an element of mutual support you know exchanging stories and so on which which is probably the most beneficial aspect uh, and then on top of that we have both online and now since lockdowns ended face-to-face -face meetings for service users so they're less regular but but we do both so uh, we used to run a lot more face-to-face -face meetings pre-covid but that all came to a shuddering end of course with covid um, and we had to move totally online but we're, we're slowly moving back offline again and we've opened up face-to-face -face meetings in Cardiff and Swansea so far but we'll probably open up in f a few more but they're now focused not on so much on support and the transactional stuff um, they're focused more on the emotional support and and mutual support and, uh, the, uh, the other aspect of the, the buddy scheme that I should have emphasized is because social isolation is is one of the key problems that these men face and it's overwhelmingly men um, the, the buddy scheme also encourages men to attend social events and sporting events that that we can lay on and, and sometimes uh, when we have a bit of cash we can we can actually pay for them because they're none too wealthy of course so, so if we can say well come temp in bowling and we'll actually pay for the entry and we'll buy you a burger sort of thing then much more likely to turn up so we've been running some of those events and had some very successful ones where the men could bring their children as well um, so that's our attempt to sort of break this social isolation but it's it's difficult to winkle them out of their homes sometimes so you've clearly been describing there the ways in which both parents matter support parents who are distressed and upset do you have any kind of backstop for those who identify as being most at, at risk oh well yes i mean as i said suicidality is very common so we we have a a, a guidance policy in the in the charity on suicide awareness uh, and uh, guidance on acute cases policy um, and we have uh, two of our more experienced buddies that act as the um, the re p people to refer to if if other buddies or indeed anyone become aware that um, a service user is entering the you know the serious risk phase and in that document um, we we describe the the symptomatology of suicide allergy and um, 
and which which indicators are the real red flags that indicate that you know the man might be getting very close to doing it so things like acquiring the lethal means you know getting a rope or sounding out high places to throw himself off and um you know thinking thinking seriously about planning it you know and um, saying goodbye to people you know uh, it's those things are we, and we we roll out training at least annually to everyone involved volunteers and staff on on um, suicide awareness and what to do if they do get seriously concerned and they they ref they they will then refer to to these two more experienced people um and those they will then take over that contacting that service user see if they can be sort of turned around as it were talked down i suppose um, and if not the backstop is we enjoy a good relationship with the local south wales um, suicide prevention charity um, and we've referred about 10 people to that over the last year or so and we're probably going to have to develop relationships with another similar charity because we don't want to overwhelm the, <laughs> the ones that we're currently currently using. Because as I say, we do sit at the epicentre of suicide, so it's not entirely surprising that we're finding a few to refer. I'm pleased to say that of the the ten we referred, I think, because of course we can only we can only refer by by consent. We we can, you know we're not we can't can't we don't have any any legislative powers to to refer people so it's only by consent so the the, the men themselves have to refer I say men I th one of the, one of the ten was a woman actually um, so yeah we it has to be by consent and nine out of the, the ten consented one didn't but there you go thanks very much Rick it sounds like um, quite challenging work really in terms of managing all of those painful emotions. So Rick, you also blog extensively about the disadvantages faced by men and boys on the empathy gap. What kind of issues have you covered on your blog? Yeah, very wide ranging is, is the answer. So it'll be a challenge for me to list them all or probably forget something crucial. But um, education is one, boys education in particular. Uh, health, both physical health and mental health which then leads into suicide issues. Um, where do I go next? I'm trying to do it in the order of the book. But well, there's, vi there's criminal justice issues um, because men are disadvantaged in the criminal justice system. That's what I argue. If you don't agree with it, read the book. Um, and then issues to do w with violence both inside the home and outside the home which takes it into domestic abuse issues and the two sides of the story there uh, and then that would lead on to sexual abuse and there's two sides of the story there which is probably the least least discussed aspect of all this um, and then there's the whole raft of uh, paternity issues which of course brings in the family courts it brings in uh, the epidemic of fatherlessness, but it also brings in, oh, and it brings in, of course, the effect of fatherlessness of, of, on children, which is a chapter in the book. Uh, but it also brings in other aspects of paternity, um, such as contraception, such as declining sperm counts, uh, and such as paternity fraud, so-called, or mispaternity, which is more common than people think. Um, what else uh, is there? There, um, well, there's a lot. That probably gives you a flavour for it. Oh, there's there's um, non-therapeutic non infant circumcision as well is in there, which is not something that gets talked about a great deal. I mean, FGM of course is rightly outlawed, um, but um, it, for some reason the uh, gentle mutilation of infant boys is still regarded as acceptable which is really quite baffling the the connection with religions of course muddies the water there um, but you have to remember that in this country until recently the majority of circumcised males were nominally Christian or Christian heritage and in 
in the USA that's emphatically still the case. Um, it's still the case probably in Australia, although the popularity of infant circumcision is declining now in all countries, probably bar the USA, but perhaps even in the USA. I think it's declining in the USA though, because I think Medicare has refused to finance it. I think that's the story there. So. But yes, that's that's another illustration of the the way, it, well it's an illustration of the empathy gap, which is the title of the book. It's, um, for some reason, you know, non-therapeutic interference with the genitalia of girls is seen as horrific, which indeed it is. Um, but the same for boys, I oh know, that's perfectly okay, apparently. And, uh, you know, th th oh, you can trace the history of this. There's been all sorts of spurious arguments in favour of in favour of it because it has medical benefits. And, uh, you know, people still believe that. And I sort of don't blame them p for believing it because, you know, you'll get publications that seem authoritative that appear to prove that. Well, part of one chapter in the book is uh, deconstructing those arguments. So they're, they're actually f medically fraudulent, absolutely appalling. And, and they're promulgated by people who run circumcision clinics, by the way. <laughs> anyway, that, that's that's one of the more controversial topics, I suppose, in the book, that and the, the other side of sexual uh, sexual abuse, uh, which is, um, I know that's that's a subject you know something about, Naomi, Not, you know, f from a professional point of view, that is. <laughs> so quite some quite wide-ranging um, mm. topics there. Um, I suppose quite a lot around uh, physical health, which I think you think would be... Um, non-controversial but I think one of the things that's quite evident on social media is that there's a difficulty in raising any issues about male disadvantage and there's a tendency for people to assume that due to patriarchy all men are advantaged and that then seems to lead to a squashing down of these discussions. Why, why is it so hard to create space to talk about male disadvantage and vulnerability do you think? It's because of the empathy gap, that's the reason, that's the basic basic um, hypothesis that under underpins the book that the empathy gap there is an empathy gap towards males and it is not I'm not saying that it's women that have an empathy gap towards men it's women and men both have muted empathy towards men in a situation where if a, if a woman was in the same situation they'd have a greater level of empathy it's it derives from evolution uh, that's that's its origin, and it's you know you don't have to be a very sophisticated evolutionary psychologist to to appreciate where it's, where it comes from. Ultimately, it's rooted in the 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 extreme biological asymmetry of of reproduction. That's where it comes from, and and that asymmetry uh, through evolution drives a, a similar asymmetry in our innate psychology. I'm probably I'm probably triggering some people at this point because I'm I'm committing the sin of biologism in a big way. Well, yes, I'm afraid so. Um, to me, it's just common sense. It's not that I have any professional knowledge of these things, but it's just really, really quite obvious. But that's that's the origin of it, and the theme that runs throughout my book, the empathy gap, is that whatever male disadvantage you point to the narrative immediately becomes some form, some form of words that actually mean it's men's own fault. It's men's own fault. So boys are failing at school. Well, it's their own fault. They're, they're, they're too laddish. They're just too laddish. They mess about. And you know, it comes down to male privilege because they think that they're going to just waltz into a well-paid job and what, however they do at school, and so they don't have to try. That, You'll hear that that argument made, but that's that's an example of it's it's their own fault. Where uh, when I was young, you know, when I was at school, it, it was it was girls that did less well at school, and it was axiomatic that that was discrimination. But now it's boys doing less well at school. It's axiomatic. It's their own fault. Suicide. One of the things that really annoys me, as soon as suicide is mentioned, in the next breath you can guarantee it will be, well, men, men need to speak up more. Men are reluctant to seek help. It's, it's 
basically because of being too macho. They're afraid to look weak, so they won't seek help. And, and they're afraid to show their feelings. In other words, it's their own fault. I mean, can you imagine if you were talking about female suicide, following it up with, with that? You know, let's not lose sight of the fact, although there's three times more men killing themselves, there's something in the order of a thousand women killing themselves <laughs> by suicide every year in, in the UK. Uh, that's a lot, of, a lot of women killing themselves. Who's going to say, well, you know, they, they need to seek help or <laughs> need not to be... Or, or no worse, of course, if you're going to turn around the psychology, well, they need, they need to be more stoic. They need to be more like men. <laughs> I mean, it would be so transparently lacking in compassion. But for men, that, that will work every time. And it's just another way of saying, well... It's their own fault. And this works through all the all the, the male disadvantages. You get it in the family court issues. I don't know if you're familiar with Cassie Jay's film, The Red Pill. It, it's, it's a film about about people like me, about MRAs, men's rights activists. And um, she, 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 also in, she also interviews feminists in, in the film to give counterbalance. So one of, one of them, a very famous feminist, male feminist academic in the States, uh, Michael Mesner, he was interviewed and the, the conversation turned to the family courts and he repeated what you'll hear a lot of people say. He said, well, if, the, if this, these men who are finding it difficult to get contact with their children, if, if, if only they'd taken a more active role in childcare, well, you know, when they were still together, they might be faring a bit better in the family court. Well, that's just a statement from somebody that doesn't know how the system works because you know men that were primary carers stay at home parents the primary carers of their children while the 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 mother was the the breadwinner they don't fare any better in the family courts uh, we have any number of cases like that it's um yeah sorry i'm rambling what was your question <laughs> Well, I suppose I'm I'm curious about what needs to happen, oh, what yeah. needs to change to allow to yeah. allow for society to be more prepared to hear about male vulnerability. Well, I'm afraid it's not going to change. If you if you take my line that it's innate, not entirely innate, but largely innate, and and a lot of societal effects really build on innate biases anyway, then it's not going to change because we're not going to change our innate psychology any more than we can change, change our innate anatomy um, so there's there's a degree to which it's it's not gonna it's not gonna change and you know this is a point where there's a lot of misunderstanding it's not really so much the male disadvantages that matter even though I've written and talked so much about the male disadvantages the reason I do so and I'll, I'll get accused of trying to Play, make a play in the victimhood Olympics by talking about these things but of course you'd, you'd be on a fool's errand if you were going to try and play victim you'd can, you know try and play the victim card for men it's just not never going to work no it's it's um, you see it's it's um, it, it, it's not the male disadvantages per se that really matter I think I think men would have gone because it's not new. It's not. It's not as if feminism in the 1960s created this issue. I think feminism made it worse. Let's not beat about the bush. But it was ever thus. You know, when was it ever easy being a man? I don't think it ever was. Although some people oddly seem to think it's it was. But it it it's not the male disadvantage exactly per se that count. It, I think men would have been happy to soak up the male disadvantages forever um, if in return for that they got the respect and status that they used to have the really catastrophic thing in our society now is the vilification of men and it's the vilification of men in conjunction with the male disadvantages which is absolutely unacceptable that's the issue, and um, yeah, I mean, I think I think men would would simply, you know, uh, tolerate a disadvantage, and and 
effectively tolerate being held to higher standards, whether it's in criminal justice or you know, um, their, their sexual behaviour towards the opposite sex or whatever it might be. They'd, they'd tolerate being held to higher standard if it came coupled with the respect and, and, um, and status that it, that it used to come with. But, of course, that respect and status is now confused with this idea of patriarchy, which must be smashed. Well, no, it's a combination of those two things which is entirely unacceptable. But I don't think it's going to change uh, any time soon. And I don't think... Um, people will become more sympathetic to men's issues or boys' issues, actually, irrespective of age, um, unless and until the collateral damage on women is such that women women take up the cause. Uh, men will never, never correct this, partly because men don't have in-group preference and partly because they're just not inclined to, to do it and partly because... We don't have the social power, actually. There's another controversial statement for you. And well, I just wondered if I could just get you to clarify mm. something, Rick, because I suppose um, I, I think, you know, there's a, a danger that I think your response to that question could be interpreted in two, in two ways. And I suppose I'm hearing you say that the... My fear is that people listening would think that what you're saying is men, um, men could suck up the, 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 all the hardships they have to cope with, so long as they still had um, advantages and um, a superior status. But I also heard you say it's more about the vilification than about the. So it's not so much about the, the about equality but about uh, vilification so men men don't even get the equality is that what is that what you sorry saying? i've missed that last bit men i don't know if i'm asking that very clearly well i, I suppose i wasn't sh I, it wasn't clear to me whether you were saying that if men had superior um status and advantages they could suck up the disadvantages um, that they also experience um, or whether you were saying it's the twin thing of having to suck up disadvantage and also to some degree um, experiencing a lot of vilification at the same the same time that was more of the issue. Yes, it's the combination of the, the two I think which is destructive and uh, I'm not, not arguing for greater respect for men <laughs> arguing for some would be nice um, because the, the phenomenon you've alluded to in terms of um, you, you only have to, to mention men any, any issues to do with men and, and you can provoke a very uh, passionate uh, sort of pushback response emotionally driven pushback even when you, even well I've been I've been out on the streets campaigning against male genital mutilation right and most people are reason, react reasonably to that, but you will get a certain number of people who will be angry that you have the temerity to do that. And it seems to be because, that, well, what they'll say is, it's much worse for women. Well, I reassure them that I, d I don't know any intactivist, as they tend to be called, who who isn't equally opposed to female genital mutilation. There is no conflict there. It, you know, you would think we would be on the same side, but no, no, there's... So what's going on there? It's almost as if shining the, pot, the spotlight of attention on men is what they object to, or boys, infants, babies in this case. That's what they object to, um, which is really quite worrisome and this issue of the empathy let's just go back to say physical health I, I, I listened to the the debate in parliament on international men's day um, 10, 10, 11 days ago and um, one of the one of the MPs there 
I think I think she was I think she, I think she was actually an equalities minister. Though I have, have to look that up. I might have that wrong. But she she'd been um, she anticipated a question coming to her. I think on why is there a women's health strategy and not a men's health strategy, which is a perfectly reasonable question, <laughs> given that men have shorter longevity and and some of the statistics on male physical health is pretty pretty poor. I mean, uh, men are nearly 50% more likely to die prematurely before the age of 75. 50%, that's huge. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the non-sex-specific non cancers, men, more men die of every single, more men die prematurely of every single one. So there are real issues there. It's not, ju not just something sentimental, but but she gave a, a blocking response, essentially, a politician's response, which to my mind was completely spurious, and it was an argument based on loss of uh, number of number of years of degraded health. Well, it's, it's a false measure, really. Uh, but the, 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 people will always find a ration, rationalization for what is actually the empathy gap. It's, and it it seems to be sort of instinctive. It's, it is, well, I argue that it is innate. And that's why I'm pessimistic about that being overcome. Um, but, you know, we got along rather better with each other as male and female, historically, despite the fact that we lived in a gendered society. And that's because each, to my mind, each sex had advantages and disadvantages. But it's all been one way recently, which this is the source of the discontent, I think. Well, I, su I suppose the counter argument to that would be maybe it, it maybe things appeared to get on well because women sucked it up at, at, at that point. It's, it's very difficult to... Uh, yeah, well, women, women certainly did suck it up. They sucked up their disadvantages just as men did. I mean, it, you know, it, I mean... Well, I, d I don't really want to get into a, what will obviously be a very controversial critique of, of feminism, uh, and and of course there's a huge, you know, it's a broad church with many different views, of course. Um, but the, the feminists are guilty of of putting forward a very skewed view, not just of the present, but in particular of the past. Um, you know. The whole idea that you know, yeah, w women stayed at home and did the domestic chores, and men went out to work. Well, mm, that's a very bourgeois view, isn't it? You know, only only bourgeois women had the luxury of not working. Working class women always worked. And um, this this idea that men have fulfilling careers. Well, again, that's a very bourgeois view. <laughs> uh, you know, hundred years ago, a very tiny percentage of men might be said to have had fulfilling careers. Uh, the vast majority of men were doing appalling, grueling, le hard labour. You know, digging ten thousand miles of canals with picks and shovels. You know, women would not have envied men's fulfilling careers then i mean it's 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 a very distorted picture but it's it's, um, it's a very it's a very complex and layered argument isn't it so uh, i'm reminded we asked the same question that you mentioned a moment ago why isn't there a policy for men's health of uh, nick fletcher on one of our podcasts he's the uh, tory mp for an area of doncaster a very decent man, and I suspect he has a very different perspective than, say, a member of the Bullington Club, who I suspect will bring along a fair amount of male entitlement. But the problem is it's very difficult to hold a rational debate among people who hold these differing views. It's become very politicised and polarised. It's very, it's very conflated by class as well though isn't it as you're pointing out it's like the issue about the votes and the fact that actually most men didn't have the right to vote either but I guess because middle class people have had the um, they've had control over what information's 
around, it's very easy to, to assume that middle class perspective represented all men and women of previous previous era. But can hear um, kind of that sense of hopelessness about the possibility of, of changing in what you have to say, Rick. And also, you know, you can hear that you've the, some of the work with both parents matter sounds extremely painful. And I wonder, you know, I imagine you've probably been on the receiving end of quite a lot of vitriol um, for your blogging activities as well. I wonder what, you know, how do you cope with these experiences? What keeps you energised and able to carry on doing this work and talking about things that probably lots of people would prefer you not to talk about? Well, actually, you know, I haven't been, um, I haven't been this subject to a lot of vitriol, but that's because I keep a low profile. I mean, I wouldn't dream of using Twitter because that's just sticking your head in the noose, isn't it? I call it anti-social media, by the way. So I don't go anywhere near Twitter, I never have. I don't use Facebook. Uh, I have got an account, but my page is completely blank. I've only got a Facebook account because the charity uses it, so I need an account so I can log on to their page. So I don't go anywhere near social media. Um, and my my blog, although you you might expect that to attract uh, a lot of pushback, actually not very much. I, I, I get the occasional occasional adverse well <laughs> seriously adverse comment let's say but it's only very occasional and I, I'm perfectly happy to approve them <laughs> I think they undermine their own case but uh, anyway but no I well I think my blog doesn't attract that much um, ire because it's just not big enough you know it's it's fairly well known amongst sort of like-minded people but but not more broadly than that and the same is I have a YouTube channel and the same applies to that it's only tiny tiny so you tend to get left alone if if you're only small so I've, I've been uh, I've been lucky in that respect you know I, I'm pleased that that's the case because I, I really don't like conflict um, I've chosen the wrong subject to be involved in for someone that doesn't like conflict really but I've been blessedly free of it um, what was the other part of your question well, the other part, I guess, was about the fact that you're championing a cause, which you sound quite um, pessimistic about the <laughs> scope of cha making yeah. an impact and yeah. making a difference and, you know, not just preaching to the converted. And how do you keep yourself, you know, energised to be able to do that work? Because you, you're devoting quite a bit of energy to it. Yeah. Well, long walks and plenty of bark is, is the answer. <laughs> how do you keep yourself sane uh, and and immersing yourselves in in maths and physics from time to time for something different um yeah yeah there's a danger of i mean i i, I am a rather miserable old bugger really <laughs> so, so perhaps it plays to my uh, my psychology that uh, i take this dim view of things um but, you know, it's not all downside, although I'm pessimistic on the societal level. I'm very much more interested in individuals, and if individuals comprise a minority of society, then that doesn't bother me too much. And what we do in the charity, of course, is helping individuals. That's, that's what's meaningful. Um, you know, at the end of the day, politics is all about the pursuit of power, and polit politics, which isn't, isn't a laudable objective, and politics is no no pursuit for a gentleman is it so it's it, it's helping individuals that matter and um, and what matters or should matter to individuals is their own personal integrity that's the message I preach I mean I'm not a religious person but uh, I do have a um, I do have oddly uh, despite not being religious I do have a um, a belief in the transcendent don't ask me to rationalise those two statements, <laughs> and uh, so there is there is a there is an absolute there that 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 does transcend these these rather gloomy aspects, and even my gloomy aspect needn't be entirely gloomy. I think um, you know there's, there would be nothing wrong with men tolerating a degree of disadvantage, actually, per se, you know. We haven't talked about equality, have we? And uh, but 
Um, so that I think I've probably condemned myself so thoroughly that I might as well condemn myself a little more. But I don't regard equality as a, as a, a valid objective. I think it's, I think it's um, a, a fraudulent idea. But you have to be very careful about what you mean by that. Because if what you mean by equality is equality of opportunity, in other words, not artificially restricting anyone on grounds of sex or race or religion from pursuing what education, what, 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 what profession and so on that they wish to, to pursue, then I'm 100% in favour of that. Um, but you see, I wouldn't call that equality. I'd call it liberty. I'd call it freedom. And being socially conservative means that's one of my core values. So where does that leave us exactly? But that's not what equality now is, if we're going to have a longer discussion on this. And I, I, you, know, you might want to take a look, if you haven't already, at the Equal Treatment Bench Book, the, uh, the guidance to judges on equality issues. You might want to have a look at the government's guidance to the 2010 Equality Act, or any, n any number of other sources, and they will say now, that the, the view of equality that is now to the fore is equality does not mean treating everyone the same. Well, that's a very different spin on equality, and it's, it's a slippery slope to go down, because to my mind, that leads you into some animals are more equal than others. That's, that's a great danger. That seems like the perfect place to stop. Thank you very much, Rick. Thanks a lot, Rick. It's great talking to you. Well, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure, and uh, if you feel that my, my uh, opinions are too strong medicine for your audience, don't feel obliged to use it all, or even indeed any of it. <laughs>